you want to take your Bibles and turn, we're back in 1 Samuel. We're going to take uh, a chunk today as we come to these last few chapters in 1 Samuel. I want to pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, if it looks like I've chosen over three chapters, that's because it's true, but they aren't super long chapters, so that's not terribly intimidating. Uh, I don't know if you remember in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, where we read of one of the most famous showdowns in all of history. Elijah climbs to the top of Mount Carmel and he builds an altar to Yahweh, or rather he has some other folks build an altar to Yahweh. And in the other corner of the ring, as it were, stand 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah issues them this challenge with there's not just the prophets here, but then there's also a great crowd of people all around. They're here to see this showdown between Elijah, the one man standing for Yahweh, and these 450 prophets of Baal. There's also 400 prophets of Asherah there, and then this great crowd of people. And, and this is the challenge Elijah issues. He says, let us see who has the real God. They prepare a sacrifice, and we're going to call for fire from the sky. Well, the prophets of Baal do just that. They spend all morning wailing, cutting themselves, and praying. And Elijah mocks them the entire time. Maybe your God is going to the bathroom. Maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe your God is taking a nap. No one heard, it said. No one cared. No one answered. Twice it tells us that. No one answered. But when Elijah has his altar prepared, he prepares it, quote-unquote, by dousing it three times with water, surrounding it with a moat filled with water. He does everything to fireproof this altar except spray it with asbestos. <laughs> then he prays, and fire falls from the sky. And it not only consumes the sacrifice, but it consumes the water in the moat as well. Yahweh hears prayer. Yahweh cares and Yahweh answers. But this makes chapter 19 of 1 Kings all the more shocking because in this very next chapter, right after this great victory, Jezebel, the queen, sends a message to Elijah and says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah, who's just stood up to 450 prophets of Baal, runs for his life into the desert and begs God to kill him. The, the turn almost leaves you as a reader, if you're just reading this straight through, with a sense of vertigo, like, whoa, what's going on here? And David seems to be in a similar position as we approach these late chapters of 1 Samuel. In the beginning of 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, we read this, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Nothing better for me, he says. He says to his heart, I've got nothing better than to just run away to the Philistines. He's just been on a mountaintop of victory. Maybe not quite Mount Carmel with Elijah, but certainly a high. He's seen God spare him from the hand of Saul time and time again over the course of years, seven years, I think, at this point. And this last time, he really rubs it in Saul's face publicly. The, the Plains Indians of North America had a custom in battle of counting coup. 
And what it meant to count coup was that if you in battle rode up to your enemy and touched him, either with your bow or with your hand, or you had, they actually had like a coup stick where you could reach out and touch your enemy with this stick, it was seen to give you more honor and more prestige than if you had killed that same enemy, to go up, touch him in battle, and get back safely. That was seen as the ultimate act of bravery. And in addition, it had some other purposes. Not only have you now humiliated your enemy, who had you in arm's reach and couldn't kill you, but it hopefully would actually de-escalate the situation. If you've just got a few combatants and you go up and you count coup, they might see, okay, he was brave enough to do that. We're going to de-escalate. We're not going to fight any longer. And you've had a bloodless victory. Well, David, for all intents and purposes, has counted coup on the most powerful man in the region. And as you move on in this story, Saul's going to go into battle against five kings at once. They have to, the Philistines have to band all their forces together to attack this one king, Saul. Saul's the most powerful man in the region, and David has walked into his, his camp and taken his jar and taken his spear. He's counted coup. And yet here, the very next chapter, he's like, well... Saul's going to kill me. I don't, I don't have anything better for me here. I'm just going to have to run away. The first principle we find in our text this morning is the danger of preaching a bad sermon to yourself. 1 Samuel 27, verses 1 through 4. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape into the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer saw him. So do you see what David is doing here in verse 1? says, David said in his heart. David is talking to himself. Now, I've spent most of my life talking to myself and being corrected for it. Someone should have corrected David here. Not, the issue is not that he talks to himself. We all talk to him, to ourselves. Some of you have the good sense to do it in your head. Some of us do it out loud because we don't know any better. But, but the issue with David's self-talk here is what he's saying. Here is a man who has been displaying such faith, such confidence in God, and yet here he has despaired to the point where he just wants to throw in the towel, pack it in, head to Philistia. There's no way that this is going to keep working in Israel, he says. So what does he do? He packs up and heads for Gath. Now, we probably shouldn't be terribly harsh with David, these are trying circumstances after all, right? He's been on the run for years and years and years. He's had close call after close call after close call. He has been, in a human sense, forced out of the land. But do you remember what happened the last time David went to Achish, king of Gath, chapter 21? He had to feign insanity to get out of there with his life. It's like, hey, you know that place where I had to drool all over my beard and scratch the walls like I'm a cat? Yeah, I'm going to go back there because I think it's a safe place to go. Continuing on in verse 5, David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, 
Let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from the days of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would, have, would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish said, asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jerhamelites, Jer I have no idea how to say that, and against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us, tell about us, and say, so David is done. <clears throat> so was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he will always be my servant. Now, as, as we look at the rest of this chapter, God is providing for David here. He's providing life for him in this region, for him and for his men. David goes to Achish. Achish is, Achish is favorable to him. He asks for a separate city. He's given Ziklag. And this not only provides David with a place of safety, it provides a base of operations where he's able to spend the next 16 months operating as a raider in the region. But that's it's a bit of a mixed story too, isn't it? There is, in some sense, the, these are attacks on the enemies of Israel. And David, as the future king, is starting to fulfill what should have been done by Joshua and the people hundreds of years beforehand, and, and what Saul should have been doing in First Samuel chapter 15, where he fails to wipe out the Amalekites. But David also seems to be doing it in an extremely brutal way. Not in the sense where he has a direct order from God to do this, where the people are put under the ban, as it were, uh, like happens in Judges and not Judges, in Joshua. But, but David is doing this, the text tells us, not out of obedience to God, but because he's afraid of what will happen if there is, a, is someone who escapes. Well, they'll tell Achish, and then Achish isn't going to be my friend anymore. He won't protect me anymore. He's being this brutal, not out of obedience, but out of fear. And not only is he doing that, he's lying to his host. He spends the entire time lying to Achish, and, and Achish, as a result, trusts him. He trusts David. And this really leaves David in a pickle, because by the end of the chapter, Achish, who has been believing everything that David says, thinks that David must be making himself a stench to the people of Israel. So as we come to the first couple verses of chapter 28, we read this. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me and in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, uh, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Achish now expects David to pick up arms and fight against Israel. 
And if you're saying, as we go through this story, whoa, how can God's anointed lift up arms against God's people? That's the right question to ask. How could he do that? What started off as David preaching to himself a bad sermon that failed to account for God's faithfulness has led to actions that have now backed him into a corner where he's about to have to pick up arms to fight against the people he's supposed to lead. If you continue on in chapter 28, the the narrative actually breaks. It turns and focuses not on the rest of this story with David. It turns and it looks at Saul. Well, what's going on here? And we're going to come back to this story next week. We're going to skip it for now. The author is jumping out of chronological order. If you line up the geographical markers in chapters 28, 29, and 31, uh, what you'll see is that that this story with Saul is actually giving us a little bit of a fast-forward into the future to the night before the battle between Israel and the Philistines. But, but the author's jumping us forward here, almost as if to say, oh, you think David's situation is bad? Look what's going on with Saul. Look where his heart is at. Look to the depths at which he's fall, to which he's fallen. But while there's a compare and contrast between David and Saul, there's also some disturbing similarities between the two men. They have both made horrible decisions that have landed them in bad places. The difference between them is not their wisdom or their inherent goodness or their inherent badness. The difference between them is how they relate to God. But we'll pick back up with Saul next week. For now, let's continue into chapter 29. We'll read verses 1 through 5 as we find David experiencing some unexpected grace, grace from an unexpected place. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. So this is way like 60 miles to the north of, of Ziklag. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. <coughs> David, as, as he and his men rode north with Achish up to Aphek, or walked, it's probably a march, you, you almost have to wonder what's going through the heads of his men. Like, did, did we really leave Saul? Did we really leave Israel in order to fight our own people? Will I ever be able to show my face back home again? It, it must have been a disconcerting time. David himself must have been wondering, how am I going to get out of this? What am I going to do? You know, maybe he was planning to do what the Philistine lords worry about there, where he turns and 
and fights them as he's there with them. But that doesn't seem like a good plan for a long life expectancy either. He's not, he's in a bad spot. But God has surprising ways of rescuing his children. When, when the group passes before the commanders of the other Philistine cities, so remember, the Philistines had five main cities, so Gath is just one of those, and each of them had a king, and they banded together when they were going out in these military campaigns. And so as David's group passes in the back of Achish before the other four commanders, they, they ask the obvious question, like, Achish, are you out of your mind? What are these Hebrews doing here? To which he replies, well, David's been with me for a long time, and he's, he's our super nice guy. He's really been helpful to me. Couldn't leave him at home when there was some good fighting to be done. And, and the Philistine commanders, they remind him of a song that they should all know, one which we've read before and which would indicate that David might be inclined to kill them all. So Achish is then forced to bring David the bad, bad news. Verse 6, Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. You've almost got to feel bad for Achish. The guy is so friendly and dense. <laughs> he, he seems to be genuinely disappointed to be bringing this news to David. But of course, everything he thinks he knows about David is a lie. David has not been serving him faithfully. David, David hasn't been faithful to him. David isn't upset, though he certainly feigns it here. David has just been spared a tragic encounter by God. God has delivered his servants through the prudence of the enemies of God, right? The, the Philistines are God's enemies in this story, but their prudence saves David. And, and brothers and sisters, this should cause us to take heart. Have you ever leaned on your own understanding, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us not to do? Trusted in your own wisdom to get you out of a situation only to make it way worse? I've done that more times than I can count. Have you ever made such a wreck of your life that you ever wondered if God could possibly rescue you from it? God can rescue you. He may not, as he did for David here, rescue out of the consequences, the earthly consequences of your sin. He does not promise to do that. You may have a hard road to hoe in front of you, but there will be a route to escape sin itself. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 promises us that, that if you want out of sin, God will give you a road. It may not be an easy road, but there will be a road. 
And for David and his men, that road was a 60-mile trek back home, three-day journey. So as we come to chapter 30, we find out that uh, Ziklag had some visitors of a less-than-friendly nature while David and his company were away. And in this chapter, we're going to see the importance of preaching the right sermon to yourself. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 6 say this. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So again, we find David having experienced a great relief in the last chapter, deliverance by God, being sent home from battle, only to find his city sacked. The inhabitants kidnapped, the possessions all stolen. What do you do when you've just made a 120-mile round trip on foot over the course of about a week, only to come home? You're physically exhausted. You come home, and you see your city's on fire, and your family is gone. Well, verse 4 tells us what you do. You cry your eyes out. Until they had no more strength to cry, they cried. And then, if you're a normal human being, you look for someone to blame. That makes you feel like you've got some control. And you generally look up to the top to look for someone to blame. And so David is blamed by his men. They want to stone him. David's men have been drugged by him to and fro, and now they're contemplating doing Saul's job for him. Let's kill David. Maybe if David could ingratiate himself to Saul by killing the Philistines, we could do it by killing David. Maybe we could go back. These men who had joined David in the bitterness of their soul, Psalm, or not Psalm, 1 Samuel 22.2 tells us that. Everyone who was bitter in soul went out to David. Now these same men are bitter in soul toward David because their families have been kidnapped, verse 6 tells us. How does David respond? Does he again try to figure out his own way out of this mess? No, David, David makes the right move this time. It says David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This isn't, oh, things got really tough, now I'm going to have to turn to God. He's not looking at God as some magic genie in a bottle. He's not just looking to God because things got tough. Things were tough before when he forgot God. But now David remembers where he needs to turn. This is David realizing where all of this trying to figure things out on his own has gotten him. A whole lot of nowhere. And so he turns to the Lord. Commentators have noted just how important it is that this text refers not, refers not merely to God in some general sense, that David strengthened himself in the Lord, but it says 
He strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. His God. David's trust in Yahweh, though he strays at times, is a personal trust. The Lord is his shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. Do you know God in this way? It's easy to know about Jesus in a society that even to this day is soaked in Bibles. I was looking it up. There's 87% of American homes have a Bible. 84% of those have multiple Bibles. Like knowing about God is not complicated. It's not difficult. It's, he's not hard to find. But do you know about him or do you know him? It's a big difference. Do you trust him to save you? Continuing on in verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, and those who were with those who were left behind where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and about and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. So again we find God provident oh, I was gonna read down through verse fifteen, sorry. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink, and he, they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites, and against which that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So here again we find God providentially leading David and providing for him. You've got to think, what are the odds that they come across this guy in the desert, who's been laying here sick for days. If we weren't reading the Bible, we'd say, wow, that's lucky, <laughs> right? We, we, we would see, like, this is just extraordinarily unlikely in human terms. We know, because we're reading, the narrator has told us that the Amalekites have come and raided Ziklag. David has no idea who's done that. David has no idea who he's looking for, where they went. They just strike off looking for them. David doesn't have the narrator's voice in his head telling him, here's who did it and here's where to go. He just knows it was a band of raiders. But God tells him to pursue, and so they do. And they find this Egyptian man who can take them where they need to go. Verse 16, when they had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. 
And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David, David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. And David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet with the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had, not gone, who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With, that, with what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the, from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Ziphmoth, in Eshtemoa in Rakal, in the cities of Jeremahelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. There's a lot there in the end of that chapter. But in verse 19, we're almost reminded of Job, aren't we? When David brings back all, and how in Job God had restored over to him more than he had even been given to start with. Everything that had been taken has been restored, and even more so because of the spoil that would have come from the other cities that these Amalekites had raided. With all that there is to look at, I just want to focus in on verses 22 and 23 as we close. It says, Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. And David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. So there's this faction of the fighting men of the 400 who kept on going that don't want the baggage watchers who, I mean, go figure, after 120 miles of marching and then crying your eyes out are too tired to keep on going in this chase, their case is understandable, but I don't want to evaluate David's, the, the meat of his response so much as the theology that's underneath of his response. He says to them, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given to us. His fundamental viewpoint is that all of this bounty, all of these riches, all of this reward, all of this that they have recovered is from the hand of God. We went through all of chapters 27 and 29 without David so much as mentioning Yahweh. Now, you don't want to overread absences of things when you're reading a narrative, but 
from David, who is constantly speaking of the Lord, that absence of Yahweh's name on his lips is it's an almost deafening silence. But here we come into chapter 30, and he seems to have regained his footing. He understands that his strength comes from Yahweh. His deliverance comes from Yahweh. His victory comes from Yahweh. And all good gifts are from above, from the Father of lights, James 1.17 would say. There's a difference, brothers and sisters, between preaching the right and wrong sermon to yourself. We are all preaching sermons to ourselves about God, about the world, about what life is really like. We preach those sermons to ourselves constantly. Are you preaching to yourself a sermon where you have to be the fix-it-all hero, the center of the story? That will lead you into some incredibly foolish actions. Instead, preach to yourself the goodness and the promises of God. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He is worthy of your trust. He's proved that in the gift of his son. He's proved it in your life. If you will but open your eyes to see it, put your confidence in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are worthy of all of our confidence, all of our hope, all of our trust. Lord, there are times in life when we are genuinely confused and beat down and we don't know what to do. Would you help us in those moments, in every moment, but especially in those moments, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one through whom you have revealed yourself to us, the one who laid down his life for us, and who rose again from the dead as a promise, as a seal, as a guarantee that all who trust in you will have that same resurrection life. We can always trust the God who raises the dead. Father, we we need your help. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?